Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and my guest today is Dr. Jack Hunter, and I've got uh, a long bio, but I'm just going to read excerpts and folks can look in the program notes for some more specifics. Uh, Dr. Jack Hunter is an anthropologist exploring the borderlands of consciousness, religion, ecology, and the paranormal. He lives in the hills of mid-Wales with his family. He is a tutor with the Sophia Center for the Study of Cosmology and Culture, University of Wales, Trinity St. David, and teaches on the MA in Ecology and Spirituality and the MA in Cultural Astronomy and Astrology. And uh, uh, Jack has a a whole bunch of books. I just pulled several titles here. He is either an editor, author, or contributor to a number of titles, including Talking with the Spirits, Ethnographies from Between the Worlds, Paraanthropology, Anthropological Approaches to the Paranormal, Damned Facts, 14 Essays on Religion, Folklore, and the Paranormal, Manifesting Spirits, an Anthropological Study of Mediumship and the Paranormal, Spirits, Gods, and Magic, an Introduction in the Anthropology of the Supernatural, and one of his most recent volumes, I love this title, Deep Weird, The Varieties of High Strangeness Experience. And uh, he also hosts the Deep Weird Dialogues on YouTube, which are really exciting. And again, Folks, look at the uh, the notes, the description for this episode, and you can find links and, and all kinds of things here. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Great to have you here. I followed your work for quite a while. Uh, you and I have collaborated as we've done works on uh, religion and pop culture. You've contributed some great stuff, and I wanted to have you on the program to talk about some of your great work. Folks can see some previous episodes I've done dealing with the paranormal to try and connect it to the ways in which people are connecting with an understanding of themselves and spirituality and religion and all that. And your work certainly helps connect those dots. Uh, I like to begin on a personal note. How did you develop an interest personally and a passion uh, with this kind of research and, and not only personally, but also academically? Yeah, well, um, I I think always had kind of an interest in these areas, going right back into my childhood. And um, I've talked recently about um, stories and things that my auntie told me, you know, and my my sister as we were growing up, which were magical stories, you know, made up stories, but magical, um, which, you know, inspired me in lots of ways. and then I had a few experiences as I was growing up, which, you know, would be c- considered paranormal. One of them um, was with magic mushrooms. And I saw these, uh, what I took to be fairies, basically. And um, I remember having or, or mentioning it to my mum the, the day after or something like this. <laughs> and uh, she had this almost kind of like a bit of a like a negative reaction to the fact that I'd seen them. Not in a, you know, a bad way, but you know, she just kind of responded to it. And that got me thinking a little bit about why some kinds of experiences uh, are taboo. You know, even if to me, it seemed like uh, 
it was a you know enough to comment on anyway <laughs> you know um but uh, but to bring it up was actually kind of taboo so that was interesting um and then when i got to university i i'd always been interested in religion and in, in school i uh was probably the only one who was interested in religious studies we did we all had mandatory religious education lessons um and i you know i was probably the, one of the only ones who took it seriously and um I wanted to do A-level religious studies, but you know, like I said, I was the only one who wanted to do the course, so they didn't run it in the school. So I kind of have always been interested in religious studies. Um, but when I went to university, I, I went into anthropology, uh, partly because of Indiana Jones and partly because uh, I saw religious education as uh, kind of like anthropology in schools, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where you could learn about different uh, cultures, different religions and things. So anthropology seemed to be a nice way to bring these interests together. And I was always interested in archaeology as well. And I did, uh, I actually did uh, an extracurricular GCSE in archaeology, which is like a, a qualification, like a, a, you know, a qualification for high school. Um, so, yeah, I was interested in it. And then when we got there, um, I was so amazed because uh, the first textbook that we were told to buy was uh, Witchcraft, Oracles and Magic Among the Azandi. By Evans Pritchard and I was like yes we're getting you know textbooks on witchcraft which is great <laughs> and the, the more that we studied the more I became interested in the anthropology of religion um, I did quite a broad degree really looking at anthropology archaeology and human evolution things like that so I had a good overview of anthropology but it was the anthropology of religion that was the most interesting and um when I got interest in, in, introduced to the work of um, anthropologist called Edith Turner, um, by it was during one of the, the lectures with uh, Fiona Bowie, who was teaching anthropology of religion at that time when I was an undergraduate, and eventually she became my PhD supervisor as well. Hmm. And she was talking about um, Edith Turner's uh, experience in in Zambia, where she saw this grey ectoplasmic kind of um, blob basically being extracted from the back of a of a patient during a ritual and I realized then that you know there was a whole academic way uh, that you could talk about experiences like my fairy experience for example which were taboo um, and but to bring them into a sort of a cross-cultural context uh, to show that it fits patterns that other people have experienced and, and things like that so yeah it that's that's kind of how the different strands tied together my academic interests in human cultures and stuff um, and then bringing it together with trying to understand certain kinds of taboo experiences now you're it's interesting your mom's reaction as you reflect back on that it was that religious was it just we don't talk about those kinds of things what was do you know what the motivation was for that um, no, because my parents are not religious or, or anything like that. And they're definitely open to things. I think it was partly just because it was a bit naughty to be doing magic mushrooms and stuff like that. Um, but it, but also, you know, to have such a sort of extreme kind of, uh, hallucination. Um, she probably thought that I'd gone crazy to, you know, that I was talking about it. You know? right, right. So, uh, I think it was more to do with that than any kind of like, ontological aversion to it but yeah. uh you know there is an ontological aversion to those kinds of things and people don't like to talk about it it was just an expression of that 
I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting that you bring the anthropological uh, background to this. I recently had a conversation a few weeks ago, one with a folklorist and one with an anthropologist uh, looking at monster studies. And it, it just dawned on me in reading their material and preparing for those conversations that they're that they're not dealing with it metaphorically. They're dealing with cultures and people groups or these are lived realities. Do, do you see, has anthropology always been more open to this given the methodology or have things changed in, in anthropology? Yeah, well, no, they ha it hasn't always been open to it, but probably out of, the, of all of the social sciences and humanities, it's probably the one that has been the most open to it, except maybe for religious studies. Um, because right from the very beginning, you know, anthropologists were encountering people with different worldviews. Um, so it had to deal with the issue of whether the beliefs of other people are real or not. But um, early on, the tendency was to, and this became the kind of standard approach, was to try to reduce it down or explain it away in terms that fit the dominant, you know, academic models, which are usually, you know, rational kind of um, empirical approach where only objective things count as real for instance whereas you know in in many different cultures things like dreams might be taken as part of reality which you know we would deride so people like um eb tyler you know he spoke he noted the the fact that um, people all around the world believe in spirits and things he called it animism and you know this was the he thought was the foundation of all religions um, but his explanation for it was that basically people misinterpret you know, ordinary kinds of experiences and attribute agency to things that don't have agency. So he said, like, we have dreams and we or people, primitive people, in inverted commas, had dreams um, uh, which they assumed to be real when actually they weren't. And that's where the belief in spirits came from. So the earliest approach has always tried to explain it away like that. But... Um, those early approaches were often kind of like a armchair anthropologists. They were relying on re other people's reports, for instance. So they didn't have necessarily a first hand, though there are some exceptions. And even people like Tyler, he did go and do some field work. Um, but, you know, in general, they were armchair anthropologists and they would adopt um, a kind of objective, detached position. But then as we moved into the 20th century, there was a real shift in the emphasis in anthropology towards uh, field work and actually going out and collecting your own data, you know, which is in, the in principle more reliable than relying on missionary reports and things like that. Um, and when anthropologists started to do that, then they, I think, confronted with the lived reality of other worldviews and they realized that it wasn't just, you know, irrationality and faulty beliefs but actually that these things and this is what Evans Pritchard noticed and Malinowski as well that magic and witchcraft and things weren't somehow separate from religion and I mean from um, science and technology but they're actually fully entwined with them and they actually support each other in certain ways um, so people started to realize that there, there must be more going on you know in these other cultures than just misinterpreting things and so gradually anthropologists became get get a more sort of nuanced un understanding of cultures as lived realities but still taboo to adopt a lived reality of another culture 
and they you know they used to call it going native and if you'd gone native then you'd lost your objectivity and therefore your conclusions can't be taken seriously anymore <laughs> and it was people like Edith Turner who started to challenge that idea because in a very simple way and this is what Edith Turner said you know she said uh, you can't understand things like ritual and religion and beliefs without participating in yourself and understanding it from the insider's point of view because that's where the inner you know that's where the inner logic is where the thing that makes it real to people uh, so she encourages anthropologists to participate in as far as possible and to experience as far as possible other world views and obviously when you do that then that opens you up to having to consider the ontological reality of those things uh, whether they're actually real other worlds or whether you know whether there are many worlds and all those kinds of things and this is kind of part of the ontological turn in anthropology realizing that these are not that cultures are not just sort of symbolic systems or you know representations of ideas but they're actually you know concrete realities for people um yeah so <laughs> It hasn't always been open to it, but it's gradually come round to it um, in interesting ways. Well, you you mentioned your interest in in religion and religious studies, and there has been something of an ontological turn in anthropology. Do you see any of that in religious studies? Are you encouraged by folks like Jeffrey Kriapel who are trying to, you know, bring this openness? Yeah, well, exactly. People like Jeff Kriapel are doing really good work with opening up religious studies but at the same time but it's the truth for even in anthropology departments you know this much more open ontological position is kind of still uh on the on the edge of it on the edge of the academy and as it as things are taught in universities and things it's still a kind of like um cultural social constructivism kind of approach you know where basically they're teaching different cultures um, but not necessarily teaching different ontological realities. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so kind, kind of the Western rationalism is still the basic assumption, operating assumption for how one approaches it. If you're to do objective scholarship. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's still a way that it's gen that it's you know taught but from the very beginning in you know education, as we're teaching cultural systems, uh, which are systems of belief. And they, they're probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you've covered, uh, as, as I mentioned, as I was listing some of the, and those weren't all the book titles that you've done. Um, you've done, covered quite a lot of ground. Do you have, what topics are most interesting to you when you do that? Obviously they all are, you wouldn't do them, but do you have some yeah. that are more interesting than others? Well, the, the way, actually the way that I think about all of the stuff that I've done is as a, it all builds on, just the work that I've done previously and everything is kind of an extension of um, or exploring down different avenues that different projects have opened up. So for example, in um, the damned facts book, I started to talk about ontological flooding and taking a, a, a sort of a complexity view of things. And then that complexity view spread out into, I sort of started to see the synergy with ecological perspectives and that's where you know greening the paranormal book came out of that and then an extension of greening the paranormal was the, again to do with complexity and diversity 
because when you look at ecological systems they tend towards increased biodiversity so it looks like you know nature moves in the direction of creating more variety and, and things like that and this is where the idea for the deep weird book came from because extraordinary experiences also seem to follow this pattern natural pattern of uh, becoming increasingly bizarre and strange and more diverse so that you know they all build onto each other and um all sort of organically grow out of each other and all coming from the original idea for paranthropology which was to take the paranormal in its cultural context and then you know and then it span, spans out into the ecological context and then maybe into <laughs> other contexts as well so that's kind of where i'm at the moment trying to think about these things in um as non-reductive a way as possible. Well, you mentioned on a lot of ontological flooding, and it was in my list of questions a little later down, but since you mentioned it, this is a great time to bring it up. Um, can you describe what that is and how you draw upon it to try and move away from some of this reductionism that is out there in studying? Yeah, it, um, it's got a few different elements to it. One of the first elements that came out of my research, my PhD research with mediums and um, all of the different kinds of approaches that you have to things like mediumship um, in the academy and as well as popular ideas about it as well. And when I was put, when I was kind of doing my literature review, you know, I was going through all of these different explanations for mediumship that were all kind of partial explanations or interesting or totally, you know, going in the wrong direction. So, for example, like there's a social functionalist explanation for mediumship, but it it helps people build communities around each other and things like that. There's a psychological functionalist view that says that it performs, you know, grieving functions for people or or whatever helps them to feel, uh, you know, classic like um, stable in an unpredictable world and that kind of thing. Then there were cognitive theories which said it was all about the way that the the mind, human mind processes information and kind of like the, how the brain works like a computer. And sometimes you get things that are miscategorized and that's where possession beliefs come from. <laughs> there was others that were take, reducing it down to biomedical explanations. Some people saying that it was um, epilepsy. Some people saying that it's schizophrenia. Some people saying it's dissociative identity disorder. And then there was all of the other different theories that, you know, actually was contact with spirits of the dead. And you know everything like that, or that it was super psi. It's not not really spirits. It's so basically, when it came down to it, you know the literature review was like, well, there's so many different theories of mediumship, <laughs> and none of them, if you take any any of them individually, you know it doesn't match up to the reality of what's actually going on. You know, if you go to a séance and participate in it and experience these things, and or if you talk to real mediums about their beliefs and experiences none of them quite matches up to it even accepting the total reality of it you know because then you can start questioning the possibility of fraud and performance and all of that kind of stuff so what i wanted to do was to try to be have a position on it where you could take all of the different perspectives into consideration basically put them all on the table and use them to build a nuanced understanding of mediumship okay that is aware of the fact that there's fraud and totally comfortable with the null hypothesis as well, which is that none of it is real. But, you know, that's just one possibility amongst so many others. 
So the idea with ontological flooding is, to, well, one of the ideas with it is to, you know, put them all on the table or let the let all of these ideas flood over us, and then build up a, you know, like I keep saying, a more nuanced picture. And if we just went down the perspective that it was all fraud and delusion, then you ignore the social functions that it performs, the psychological functions, the cultural elaboration of it. You know, you could study mediumship just in terms of performance or just in terms of, uh, you know, like drama and things like that, which would be a whole interesting thing in itself, which, you know, a, a blanket dismissal would ignore. So, yeah, basically that's what it is trying to do. And the other argument or the other angle on it was um, a response to, in the social sciences, there's this thing called, it comes from phenomenology where you bracket out questions of reality so that you can just study the social facts. Um, so, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to ask whether, whether the spirits are real or not. Um, you can just study the belief and the impact that that has on people's behavior. So you put the brackets up, but that is, um, also a kind of ontological choice or decision that you're making. You're saying which stuff you can study and which stuff you can't, which stuff is real, which stuff is social and that kind of thing. So in a way, it's better to to knock down the brackets altogether, and you know com confront, you know, face up to the the ontological question. So, it's ontological flooding. Then is basically saying you know knock down those barriers and let all of these different possibilities in to be considered. Don't dismiss them and don't dismiss the null hypothesis either, but understand them all as perspectives on it that can give us a insights into aspects of the thing uh, without fully explaining it or you know or giving us a complete picture so yeah 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 uh we're talking you know academically about your studies and this kind of thing which is important but i also want viewers and listeners to try and have a feel for the kind of work that you're doing and a, a part of what you're doing is this uh participant observation these ethnographies can you share uh, an, an aspect of your research when you were you, you were doing your academic approach? You're trying to maintain some level of objectivity to understand, but you were also personally touched and moved by the experience that you had. Yeah, well, my PhD research is probably you know the best. It's the most sustained, long-lasting piece of fieldwork that I did, and. Um, Basically, I went to this group in Bristol in the UK called the Bristol Spirit Lodge, and they were a private home circle developing trance and physical mediumship. And um, I was inspired, like I said before, by Edith Turner's suggestion that if you want to understand what's going on, then you need to participate in it and you know experience things as best as you can. So um, I went to the seances and I, you know, I decided from the very beginning that I was going to participate in them. I was going to attend seances and even went to the extent of doing uh, mediumship development sittings for myself to try and develop my own mediumistic ability, <laughs> um, which is was a very a strange experience because I never, I've never thought of myself or I had never thought of myself and I still don't think of myself as a medium. But when we did this development sitting and, you know, it was only the one sitting as well. <laughs> Uh, I had this very strange experience where my both of my hands started to tingle 
basically what we've been, we've been told to meditate and allow any spirits to to let themselves be known through our bodies so i just went with the flow and meditated and my hands started to tingle and um my left hand it started to feel as if it was being pushed up or lifted up by something and i was in such a strange state of uh, consciousness state of awareness that i could feel my physical body and i could feel that it was moving but at the same time i was consciously aware that i wasn't willing it to move <laughs> and uh it did this this whole thing it lifted up and it started to wa wave around basically i suppose it was almost like my hand was waving and i was sitting there with my eyes closed and kind of feeling it happen but not willing it to happen and it freaked me out and i snapped myself out of the experience and uh, kind of everyone in the group laughed at me and had a little giggle about it um because i guess it must have been it must have looked a bit funny and uh, I was just like, I don't know what what that was, um, but I went in to do it again. So that was for me one of the most important insights into mediumship, because uh, I know I know now that when someone talks about a trance, for example, falling into a trance, that from my own experience, yeah, it's possible to enter into that state. And at the very, you know, it's possible to have an experience that at the very least feels as if you are being controlled by something else or that you're not in control of your own body anymore. And then once you open up to that experience, then you, again, you have to take the next step into quest talking and considering what's actually going on, and which opens you up to the ontological and the possibility of actual spirits and things. Um, you know, being placed on the table as possibilities for what's going on. So, um, yeah, it transformed me because it opened me up to these experiences that I'd never had. It also opened a, um, what I'm calling like a, an intersubjective entry point into another cosmology or worldview or, you know, experiential world or whatever. Um, and then also it's leaked out into you know, wider thinking about theories and methodological issues relating to how you do this kind of research and how far you can go. And also into teaching about, teaching other students about, um, you know, how to talk about these kinds of experiences, but in a, an academic context and to make them fit into the kinds of conversations that people have. So yeah, that was probably probably the most important transformative experience in that way. Well, yeah. as you know, the survey data shows that uh, belief in the paranormal continues to be very high. And do you think people, more people are having these kinds of experiences, but there are the worldview and cultural assumptions out there. On the one hand, many religious traditions that say such things are off limits, they're demonic and then the scientific rationalist worldview that says those things are just psychological phenomenon and and they shouldn't be pursued. Do you think we're based upon these uh, cultural ideas that are so strongly embedded that they kind of cut off any uh, sense of wanting to pursue what these kinds of experiences are? Yeah, they do. I think they do in um, especially in the academy. But, you know, like you're saying, popular interest is so big and people are pursuing it in all sorts of different directions. Like, um, 
and in ways that we probably couldn't even imagine. <laughs> There's a great uh, chapter in the Deep Weird book by Samantha Treasure. She's an anthropologist and she studies um, out-of-body experiences. And she's written about how the the out-of-body experience world, you know, of people who practice it, is sort of changing and, and shifting through things like TikTok and stuff like that. And there are all of these communities of people who, like young people who are engaged in um, exploring out-of-body states and things like that. Um, and also doing things like trying to get, like, um, sort of get into Harry Potter and things like that, you know, to meet characters from fictional uh, worlds in altered states of consciousness, which is really interesting. <laughs> so, you know, there is, on the one hand, there's a shutdown of it. You know, it, it's not good stuff to talk about. Um, it's not academically respectable. And then on the other hand, it's still going on and it's adapting to the modern world. Uh, it's incorporating new ideas and, you know, it's melding with technology in lots of strange ways too. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I think it was uh, Guillermo del Toro, one of my favorite contemporary film directors, who who said that that pop culture is a place where the, these mystical and paranormal experiences are expressed and explored. And, and you and I have been fortunate enough to collaborate on some projects that have looked at where some of this comes together. So I hope that kind of work continues, that at least that becomes a forum and a medium where we can look at how people are, are exploring it. There's uh, I do want to ask you about uh, in your book, Damned Facts, uh, Jeff Kripal wrote the foreword and there's a great uh, he quotes uh, William Blake that says in part, why is the mentality of the technical sanctioned in religious studies while the attitude of the artist is treated with suspicion? I love that that quote. Can you elaborate uh, not only in regards to Charles Ford, people may not who are watching and listening may not be familiar with his work. Um, but also how this connects to the study of the paranormal and religious studies more generally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Charles Fort was, um, he was kind of active towards the late end of the 19th century and early 20, 20th century. I think he died in the thirties or forties and he basically collected anomalies from scientific journals and magazines and things. And he collected all sorts of different kinds of uh, strange events some of which were kind of, you know, natural, naturalistic kinds of events, like, you know, fish falling from the sky and, and odd things like that. And other things were like uh, proto-UFO experiences when people see lights in the sky and stuff like that. Um, and he, he categorized them all. And he had like loads of little cards in his house that he kept them in, <laughs> you know, really eccentric kind of character, spent all his time in libraries collecting these damned facts. Um, and he came up with all sorts of different kinds of theories for explaining them. Um, and he even rejected a lot of the theories that he came up with. It was kind of like a creative exercise to come up with different kinds of ideas. And lots of the ideas that he, he did come up with, you know, really interesting novel kinds of approaches, which predict ideas that come along later. And UFOs is one example. But, you know, the idea that they come from other planets and or that they're, they might even be coming from other worlds and dimensions or that we're being farmed by extraterrestrials and things like that. You know, these are all ideas that can be traced back into Charles Ford. Um, so he had lots of wild ideas. And I think that was a constructive, you know, even though he was aware that some of them were 
wrong ideas. Uh, some of them, you know, were going off into on total tangents and things like that. Nevertheless, it was a creative process of thinking about all sorts of possibilities, which ties in very nicely with the idea of ontological flooding. Um, and Charles Fort called it um, intermediatism, though. That's his word for it. The idea that uh, the way he described it was that reality is kind of like a spectrum uh, that ranges from things that don't exist all the way through to things that do exist. So there's a, like a whole scale of things that are some things that might might exist, you know, some things that partially exist, other things that are very concrete. Um, and this was his kind of intermediatist way of approaching the world. So that means that all of these facts can be put on the on the on this table, and we can, you know, they might maybe we could put them into some kind of order, but nothing is any more or less real or unreal than anything else. And again, that's a really interesting way for thinking about religious studies and approaching the you know different worlds and different cosmologies and different ontologies so he you know he opened a way for that kind of thinking but obviously in a, a public sphere popular sphere and those kinds of ideas don't really enter into uh you know academic religious studies probably until well really until jeff kripal starts to talk about Charles Fort in about 2010, I suppose, around about then. Um, and then, yeah, I suggested in a few places that a Fortean approach to religious studies might be something really interesting, where instead of focusing on uh, religious beliefs and uh, systems of belief and culture, we're actually thinking about uh, like religious things or religious experiences, or religious objects. And it's like a, it's like a slightly different um, angle. You know, we talk about Fortean phenomena. You could talk about religious, you know, phenomena as as opposed to religious beliefs, um, which puts them in a different sphere. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and and in relation to uh, the arts and sciencey kind of angle of the question, um, it's just about creativity, isn't it? And opening up to the possibility of uh, of using different kinds of uh, models for making sense of the world. And one of the things that I've been interested in recently is um, the whole thing about um, uh, indigenous research methods entering into uh, social science research, which is a you know critique of uh, standard you know qualitative research and that, and those kinds of things, um, but also beginning or opening up the possibility that you could begin qualitative research from a completely different ontological perspective, which is great. So you could begin, you know, say, for example, um, let's say like Anishinaabe worldview, you know, where persons are the building blocks of reality, essentially, you know, you could begin your qualitative research from that perspective and imagine bringing that to the paranormal, for instance, you know, we're beginning from a totally different worldview from the one of standard Western sort of materialism where these things can't exist. So I like this idea of there being other, other sciences uh, that, are, that could be done and um, that could, that can draw on different kinds of things. And for example, like an, an irrational science. And this is something where that I talk a little bit about in um, deep weird book, uh, like a, bringing surrealism into the thing and you know there were all sorts of there was a surrealist research bureau <laughs> in paris in uh you know the 1920s or something 
and they were interested in all sorts of things. Uh, but you know, they did a lot of work like the Society of Psychical Research did, collecting coincidences and things like that. But obviously understanding it from the perspective of surrealism and the realization of the unconscious mind, uh, which is a totally you know, great and interesting approach. And some of their other methods were, you know, like through artistic representations, we could do research and all sorts of things through poetry. And, you know, they'll all share different kinds of different bits of light on the issue that we're addressing. So I think there's loads of scope for exploring irrational approaches to um, the paranormal to, and religious experiences and things like that. And surrealist approaches and indigenous approaches as well. Well, you uh, also refer to the X-Files of the Humanities, which I found an interesting uh, phrase. Uh, last year, Jeff Kripal brought together at Rice University a great group of people uh, talking about these kinds of things. Are are you That would obviously would be an example of the X-Files of the Humanities. Are, are you encouraged by these kinds of developments? Do you see more openness, or do you think it's going to continue to be fringe? I do see... Um... I think it's really great. And the archives of the impossible that Jeff is doing is a really amazing thing. And it brings it kind of into an institutional context, which is interesting. Uh, but, you know, there are things about the paranormal that resist uh, institutionalization as well. <laughs> you know, there's a funny thing about the paranormal that it's kind of a reflective uh, thing and uh, it kind of e interact with it in a way. And uh, I think that in some respects, it will it will want to resist being put into institutions, um, probably by becoming you know increasingly weird, and people will be boggled by it and won't want to include it anymore. And also that these things go historically, they go through peaks and troughs. So you know we see rises of interest in it and scholarly acceptance of it, and then there's a backlash against it. So you know we could be. In a, in a happy place at the moment, experiencing a rise in interest, but there might come a point, uh, who knows when, when it will be cut off again and everyone's saying that's just nonsense. So, yeah, I'm optimistic, but at the same time, I'm realistic. So, so are, you, are you content to kind of, if if your niche stayed where it was, uh, that would be fine. Uh, you're, you're content to continue your research project as your passion. Well, it'd be nice if it could be translated into <laughs> you know some kind of tenured job, but right, um, right. which it might do. You never know. Yeah. Um. But you know, I also think yeah, like it is a kind of liminal thing to be studying, and uh, it uh, it kind of likes that. It's like w with my books. Uh, I mentioned this. <laughs> A few times that uh, they're kind of like pulpy some quite a lot of them are and uh, I like that about them because I think it conveys a more authentic quality of the paranormal I like uh, you know if you look at all the old 1970s paperbacks with the crazy airbrush artwork on the front covers and things and then you, you open them up and you're like oh this feels amazing whereas if you for instance pick up a book like a, a Routledge companion to the paranormal or something like right, that right. <laughs> it's like okay it's interesting stuff but it doesn't like make you feel in the same way and i think that is a real thing about the paranormal because it 
it is active and reactive and uh, things like that. It's kind of like what Jeff Kripal talks about, you know, in, in the way that it moves into comic books and the artistic process and things like that. When we write about it, we're engaging with it. And there are certain, me, you know, media <laughs> mediums that it prefers. And, and it seems to prefer a kind of pulpy, much more pulpy kind of uh, expression than a, a kind of academic, you know, logical kind of rational expression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating that, that the memories that you just unleashed when you mentioned I, I grew up in the 70s. And uh, so I saw, you know, I don't know how many documentaries, pseudo documentaries. I had uh, those paperback novels exploring different facets of the paranormal. And it just brings back memories of the kinds of artwork that was done, the covers, the approach, uh, those kinds of things. So it, it's just fascinating. I think you're on to something there. So Yeah. It feels like it's something. I mean, that's that's the feeling I get from it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, I, I appreciate you carving out the time. It took us a while to coordinate schedules, but your work is fascinating. Uh, I continue to learn from it, and uh, I hope uh, in the future we'll be able to collaborate uh, in that. Art. I, I, I was privileged to participate when Paraanthropology, your journal, uh, was going to do some interviews with some folks. Uh, that was fun. And we've done some stuff, uh, you know, in, in the pop culture realm. Do you have any uh, future projects that you'd like to mention to folks that they can look forward to? Yeah, there's a few different things that are going on. Um, in March, there's a, a new book coming out with Routledge, incidentally, you mentioned before. Um, so it's very scholarly, um, but about folklore, people and place and about the way that folklore uh narratives can be used to maybe to promote a sort of sustainable tourism and that kind of thing you know by engaging with the ideas around personhood of places and that kind of thing um i've just written a book about um, ecology and spirituality which is a something that i teach so it's kind of like a beginner's introduction to that um and also i'm just there's a few little projects that i'm working on one on folklore and psychedelics with uh, for the psychedelic press one on Halloween, the experience of Halloween for the Journal for the Study of Religious Experience. And we're going to do a little edited book um, of student essays from our MAs at the Sophia Center um, that sort of in the, the fields of ecology and spirituality and sacred geography. So student essays about engagement with place and um, extraordinary experience and that kind of thing. So yeah, a few little bits and bobs. A few little bit, yeah. You're you're always busy, and uh, yeah. yeah. So I want folks again to look at the the podcast description, and they can find uh, links to what you're doing. And uh, it's just great work, and I appreciate you coming on the program. Thanks for inviting me. It's great. Well, again, this has been uh, Dr. Jack Hunter. Here has been our guest. Uh, look and click on those links, and uh, look at more examples of what he's doing. And look at the other conversations we've had with different scholars about uh, the paranormal and uh, consider how that helps us understand what it means to be human as we uh, connect with religion and spirituality. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. Until our next episode.